I know I do a very good impression of, um, and I do hate this phrase, but sort of normal, which I get told quite a lot. And, you know, and it's quite the backhanded compliment, but I'm not a fan of this sort of narrative around differently abled, and I'm not a fan of calling my disability a superpower. Um, And one thing that I'll say at the outset is that if you are part of the disabled community and you do identify using those terms, power to you. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. So Warren, welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks Brooke. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Thank you. Oh no, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I am genuinely so excited about this conversation because you have a depth and breadth of knowledge surrounding so many different areas that I cannot wait to pick your brain, particularly around disability, particularly around LGBTQ plus like information. I think it's going to be one of those episodes where I take everything in and I won't be able to stop thinking about it for days. (laughs) Really looking forward to it. So, uh, yeah, uh, thank you for the invite. And um, certainly a lot to discuss. I mean, I've big, uh, been a big fan, actually, of the Disabled and Proud podcast. So uh, to receive an invite, actually, to take part, it's a real honour. So thank you again. Oh, we love hearing things like this. Good way to boost my ego before we start. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question that I ask absolutely every single guest who comes on this podcast is how do you refer to your disability? An interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it, it's right up there in terms of uh, diving straight in with the uh, controversial subjects. I do like that. Um, <laughs> I, will, I, I will say straight off the bat, actually, that I've no problems with this particular D word. I've always considered myself to be disabled. It would be a struggle, mm. especially given the, the severity of my hearing impairment. It would be a struggle um, to convince anybody, in fact, that I wasn't disabled um, relative to how dependent I am on these hearing aids. Um, I I know I do a very good impression of, um, and I do hate this phrase, but sort of normal, which I get told quite a lot. And, you know, and it's quite the backhanded compliment, but I'm not a fan of this sort of narrative around differently abled. And I'm not a fan of calling my disability a superpower. Um, And one thing that I'll say at the outset is that if you are part of the disabled community, and you do identify using those terms, power to you. That's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. But I just can't have that imposed upon me. I think that's something that for me, um, I've never, ever viewed my deafness as being a superpower in any way. The fact of the yeah. matter is, is that, to me, it's a weakness. It's a deficit. It has certain advantages. It has certain positive traits that come out of that as a result. And indeed, sort of like one could even say, um, I'm proud of the person who I am as a result of what the disability has, has in a sense. But um, no, I do want the the tag, the label, the, the wording itself of disabled normalised throughout society. And I don't feel that people should be forced into accepting the notion that we're either not disabled or we're just differently abled or it's a superpower. I mean, I, I could go on. There's a few other labels, but I think yeah. those three that I tend to see is most prevalent in society and tend to have the most debates around them. 
I'm so with you on differently abled and superpower because I, I actually, and this is very personal, this is nobody else's opinions, it's very much my own opinion, but I actually find it quite cringe because I don't think disability is a superpower. And I think the reason that we have that kind of narrative around it is because it's different. And for a very long time, a lot of people have been very scared of what is different. So the way that we make something different, not so scary is, is to call it, you know, superpower and, and you and you become, you know, like elevated, but actually that elevation can be quite dangerous and quite damning. And and I think you're right. We've kind of come to a place in, in society, or at least I like to think that we we are, that we can have these open and honest conversations about as to why we don't necessarily like these terms. But I'm with you as well. If you use differently abled or if you use it, you know, you say that your disability is a superpower, then like peace to you like that works for you enjoy it like you've got to do whatever you've got to do to sleep well at night but I, I am with you on that I do find it quite cringe <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's one actually that um, uh, comes up across the airwaves now and then and you'll see a sign and boots were in trouble for it recently and I think you know yeah. where I'm going with this and of course it's the famous the infamous less abled which I think that we, as uh, with our, you know, we know disability is not a monolith, but one thing that we can all agree on, whether we consider ourselves superheroes or merely disabled, is that less abled absolutely will not do. So that, for starters, um, I just want to put out there, actually, sort of that I condemn in the strongest possible terms, whether I see it in a car park, whether I see it on a restaurant, um, restroom door, when I see it on all of these different places in public, the, the message that is being sent out to members of the disabled community. And in fact, anybody who might just simply need to use that accessible space for what it is, accessible space, um, is actually having uh, an even worse message put to them, which is that you're mm -hmm. not disabled, you're simply less than. And that's quite the Pandora's box there, actually, that you have to wonder quite often sort of where the quality control is, where the marketing teams are. And as I say, nothing about yes. without us. And where are the disabled consultants? Where are the people who do have disabilities sort of being able to actually veto this stuff? And um, I suspect nowhere to be seen. <laughs> it's actually so interesting that you bring that up um, because I said something quite similar recently at the BBC. <laughs> I was having a conversation about a certain documentary that got made. And I was just saying that at what point did, did someone consult on this who wasn't necessarily involved in it because I think if someone outside of, of who was involved in it had consulted you might have got a different answer and a different response to, to the response that you got and and it is that isn't it it's it's how did how do we let something like the less abled parking space or or the documentary that I won't name be put out there in the public space without any thought of asking for anybody who is disabled to consult on it and whether or not actually it benefits the community or not. Because there are a lot of things that do get put out there with the greatest intentions that fall so flat on their face because nobody has bothered to ask the disabled community whether or not it's actually helpful. It is fascinating, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I've got, I mean, I have some sympathy for the differently abled and superpower brigade. I've got some sympathy in the sense that what they're trying to do is they're trying to take, as I perceive it, my my weakness, my disability, my deficit, and they're trying to add to it. And, and you use the word elevate. Elevate is the best word, I think, for it. Trying to elevate um, what is. But what's mm -hmm. actually happening, of course, with less able is that unquestionably you are taking away. And yes. you are taking away from an already marginalised community who does not, despite whatever the law may say, does not experience equality throughout society, where 
the ableism and including our own internalized ableism is already rampant as it is taking away and plunging us further down into the red is really quite dangerous and really quite toxic and harmful yeah i just it's it's so true it is so true and also interesting that you touched on our own internalized ableism there because i think we never really sit back and think about how prevalent internalized ableism is until you really maybe even go on a deep dive of your own journey to to figure out what ableism is and then you realize how internalized ableism is for every single disabled person but then how prevalent it is in society and it's almost like a really big slap in the face that you didn't ask for yeah um, it is and I must admit, actually, like so many things, internalized ableism, um, it, it traces back into childhood for the most part. But I mean, that, that's a generalization in my case, of course, because I didn't acquire my disability. I don't know what normal hearing is. You know, I was born this way. I was born with, I suppose, to estimate it probably would have been moderate severe and it's now severe. So, of course, it's essentially sort of degraded. So we've got sort of a um, a bilateral sensing or neuro, uh, neural uh hearing loss in my case, which essentially means it's severe on both sides. So very heavily dependent um, on these hearing aids. And I've grown up um, with the benefit actually of of lit reading, uh, tuition and speech therapy as well, in the sense that that's actually been um, invaluable, really, for me to try. And and I'm so conscious all the time, actually, funnily enough, of when I speak, even speech is extremely deliberate. And I'm very aware. And I think... Going, I touched on childhood just a second ago, actually, sort of in terms of what, what that was like. And I think for me, I'm just about to turn 40 years old. And uh, my earliest memory of being consciously aware of being different or less than, you might say, was the fact that mm-hmm. actually when it was pointed out to me when I was five, nearly six, that my my hearing was poor. And it was finally tested. And I was suspected of being autistic, actually, um, growing mm-hmm. up, because I was just quite a disruptive child in classroom settings. I didn't seem to want to concentrate on what the teachers wanted me to concentrate on. And that was something that was um, very frustrating for sort of, yeah. um, I suppose, institutions in the 80s. And you don't know what you don't know. So again, I have some sympathy for them looking back. But um, there was a, certainly a real, there was a real problem in that, I um, had this pointed out to me and immediately it was assessed to be of a sort of severity that I had to leave mainstream education. And there was a real battle actually on a special on my mother's part to keep me in mainstream education. And uh, I think what followed was a few years of real difficulty having to kind Mm -hmm. of come to grips with that. And I think my first pair of hearing aids that I acquired sort of, you know, they were the size of a fist at the time, sort of like those awful NHS beige things that I was no, um, no fan of. I know um, they, they they improve matters somewhat, but the old analog technology that we're using at the time didn't really attenuate uh, the hearing loss correctly. So it's mm-hmm. not just a matter of, as some people think, that the world just needs to be louder. It's actually about particular losses yeah. of frequencies. So two people can both be cast as severely hearing impaired, as in my case, but we could have a complete flip side of each other's audiogram. And therefore, we'd need completely different manufacturers of hearing aids. We'd need completely different programming and completely different audiological care. And um, as a result, of course, all of these subtleties were lost. So you simply just had hearing aids yeah. that magnified everything. So they were constantly in, constantly out. It drew the attention of a lot of children around me. And um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, get that real sort of experience for the first time of um, of othering, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a yeah. tough 
it's a tough thing, actually, sort of, you know, age six or seven, some of the kids that you used to be quite um, at least sort of positive, neutral with for them to kind of treat it as a bit of a game for you to be minding your own business in a classroom and then to, you know, quick the hearing aids out of your ears yeah. and throw them, you know, to each other in a kind of game of piggy in the middle, I think it was called. But just generally, <laughs> it's, it's amazing sort of like how um, the uh, morbid fascination of kids around difference and however that manifests, as soon as it became apparent to people that the problem was that I couldn't hear, I would mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, errant children. I'd just be, again, minding my own business and they'd come and scream in my ear, for example, to see if I could hear it and little things like oh that. Oh, my gosh. And, and it's amazing, actually, how the teachers at the time... Um, didn't really have much control of the situation you know sort of like yeah and some some altercation would ensue I'd get upset they you know sort of like be encouraged as a result but they were always um at least in those spaces the teachers didn't really sort of clamp down on it there was no real disability inclusion there was no disability awareness it was always just a case of settle down go back to your seats and you know stop being disruptive um, yeah. disruption was all sort of treated exactly the same to be honest it, you know it, it, it was um it was the same disruption as if you got up and stabbed someone with a compass or you'd thrown something you know across the room and it was it wasn't sort of really looked at as being sort of individually to me or related to the disability it was just sit down mm-hmm. and be quiet so anyway sort of quite a quite a tangent there but sort of that went on certainly throughout sort no, of but... school and then going into secondary school it sort of calmed down a little bit and mm. I think people get better my speech was getting better and sort of you know growing confidence but it's um disability itself especially when born with it is that it, it frames the narrative for so many of your situations from childhood onwards I love what you said there about school because I think for a lot of disabled children schools don't actually know how to handle disability at all and it doesn't matter what the disability is it is just a really big unknown and quite often you're seen as a health and safety hazard mm-hmm. so it's very much be quiet sit in the corner and and don't do anything because uh, if you break something or or heaven forbid you break yourself I'm in even more trouble than I would be if it was a quote-unquote normal child mm-hmm. and And as we all know, normality, like, what is that? It doesn't exist. But it's very, very true what you say about schools not really knowing how to handle that type of situation because it's almost, it's a fear. They don't know how to handle it because there's a fear of what if I get it wrong? So if I don't handle it, then I don't have to get it wrong. And and I've, I've not intervened, but I've also not made the situation worse, which, again, is incredibly problematic. But but I think it's just it's so interesting how we don't have these conversations surrounding difference and disability as really young, young people. Because I think if we did, the world, hey, the world would be a better place, full stop. We would accept difference from a much, much earlier, earlier age. Right. That there's no argument to be made that that wouldn't make it better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But equally, if we did have these conversations, we'd maybe understand that humanity is not all one thing. And and as we say so often, disability is not a monolith and humanity also isn't a monolith either. So actually, there's nothing lost in having these conversations around diversity and disability at such a super young age. And and I can't, I'm sometimes very jealous of the younger generation because I think they're so welcoming of diversity and difference way earlier on than we are. And, and they get it so much younger than we do. But I'm glad that there's a generation of people who are able to have these conversations at a much younger age and are actually much more accepting than than maybe where you and I grew up. 
because I think it's needed. And and that goes back to that internalized ableism that hopefully younger generations won't have such ingrained internalized ableism from such a young age. And actually what you said about how being disabled children, it frames a lot of your like interactions with people, like some of your first interactions around, like particularly around school, particularly around like school clubs, all of that type of thing where you learn to socialize. It really does completely frame your childhood existence because that's your first interactions with people who aren't your family and as we all know like if you're a disabled child or you acquired your disability incredibly young your family are your, your biggest supporters they will do they will move hell and earth for you that is that is life and they're so great and, and it's such a comfortable space but actually when you go outside of that space and you're you're in you know society but for young children I'm not talking about like you're 18 you're going to uni I'm talking about when you're maybe eight and you're having like your first after school clubs they do inform your experiences of different people who aren't your family and and then again that goes to that internalized ableism as well because everybody's going to treat you differently if you present as completely different mm-hmm. it's true because unfortunately we're still not we're still I mean obviously sort of I, I've I work in DEI now, so therefore, of course, sort of, you know, handling diversity, equity, inclusion is very much part of my day job. Um, mm-hmm. and indeed, um, in fact, actually, so much of my early experience thinking about it feeds into the work that I do now. So there, yeah. there's that, of course, uh, somewhat the subject of another conversation. But one thing <laughs> I do um, notice, actually, is that sort of earlier on, if we're training institutions and we're training children not to have those conversations and like and like what I was saying before and what we were talking about just now in relation to if you don't call something what it is if you're simply just treating an incident that is disability related if you know a, a child has a hearing aid pull out pulled out mm-hmm. of their ear and the whole interaction is based entirely effectively on what they can't do the disability in your case if a group of young children you know children and you're a young child sort of literally gather around you to tease you about a limb difference that cannot be labelled in my mind as merely sort of playing and class disruption. You're talking yeah. about something that you're, you're talking about exclusion based solely on a person's difference and their disability. But what's happening, of course, is that to avoid having these difficult conversations, whether it's paperwork related or whether it's fear of the Equality Act or whether it's as yeah. it has then was, of course, but um, or whether it's fear of just saying the wrong thing, getting into trouble with whomever frankly is that the the discussions are not being had it's not being called what it is and you do hear sort of like some heartening um counter narratives to that for example when a few years back i was doing some work with the national deaf children's society where hearing aids themselves i mean i've been trying for decades to make hearing aids sexy i haven't um (laughs) I, i haven't quite succeeded but some of the kids actually these days are at least making hearing aids cool and they um um you know designs these days actually sort of you know bright green bright pink you know sort of like they're actually designed to um to stand out which was the opposite of what I was trying to do growing up because I'd never wanted to stand out because schools and growing up you're not rewarded in any way shape or form for difference you're rewarded Mm -hmm. for conformity and there's something very powerful that as you grow older and I mean especially at the age I am now is that conformity is the last thing on my mind but it was the first thing on my mind in school of wanting to just simply blend in and sort of wallflower my way through these institutions because it was very difficult. And yeah, it, it does. It, it frames the it frames the uh, anything that's happening to you through childhood, good or bad, frames uh, a lot of how you see um, of how you deal with sort of you know certain situations and coping skills and those mechanisms that come later. 
Um, I think certainly, of course, a lot of it did feed into sort of my my choice of career and what happened afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well, this is such a seamless transition. Honestly, I'm I'm proud of this transition because I like to talk about how, if in any way, your disabilities impacted your career choice. I think actually something you said before we talk about that, that I think I've really picked up on is the idea that conformity helps you when when you're in school and actually and like I had a light bulb moment in my head and I was like that's why I wasn't good at school because I never conformed that was why I wasn't good that's why all the teachers were not my friends because I argued with them that's why (laughs) (laughs) I was that person that consistently asked why and I never really understood as to why a teacher had more power over a group of children than the children like not being able to express the conversation that they wanted to I never really understood why one adult could could shut down a conversation if they deemed it to be inappropriate or not going the right way or it wasn't educational enough when actually you know it was still it was still on topic it just wasn't necessarily the way that they wanted it to go and and that now makes so much sense it's because I don't like to conform and here we are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing these days you get to set your own agenda isn't it I think it suits you <laughs> do you know what I think it does as well I think I needed that freedom I was never meant to be boxed in <laughs> <laughs> I love it well um I think to the question to the question about I mean it, it's it's uh many and varied ways multifaceted answer but certainly in terms of the career itself I mean the, the mm-hmm. part of the so I suppose what you'd say this sort of the, the real job, the real career over the last 15 years was corporate finance. So um, I still am a qualified solicitor. I qualified just over a decade ago. And mm-hmm. um, I think the sort of the, the lead up to that. So I, I did a law degree way back when um, Oxford University unimaginatively then became a lawyer. Um, that was fine and good, actually. But at the same time, um, the, the gateway certainly to um to that profession it's it's very in my case you know the, the the high end sort of your the sharp end as it were of practicing war in the city the big bad corporate firms mm-hmm. is that um disclosure around disability is a real issue again conformity yeah. being a cookie cutter trainee lawyer being a cookie cutter junior lawyer mid-level associate um one sense of individuality doesn't really get to, to um come out really uh, until I would say you become a senior associate it's not mm-hmm. the case for all lawyers going through and in fact I'm heartened to see that there's quite a few sort of people breaking the mold now sort of like whether they're neurodivergent or whether they're LGBTQ plus you know uh, disabled you name it sort of the various intersections of their identity people yeah. are sort of grasping um you know, taking control of, I think, their 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 own careers and that aspect of their identity a lot sooner than I did because I was extremely passive. And again, mm-hmm. it was a story of trying to conform. It was a story of trying to fit in, which in my case, there were two big ones, you know, sort of obviously hiding my um, my sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. It was easier to simply pass as, as heterosexual, the default, if you will. Um, I'm actually bisexual, but it was one of those things that I simply didn't talk about because um, yeah. what homophobic, transphobic and indeed biphobic environments, as best I could tell, that sort of um, corporate hostility to, to those aspects of identity was certainly prevalent when I was joining. Um, the disability, however, itself and how that really impacted was that I had to reckon very, very early on with the fact that this was going to have to be my big difference. 
I didn't want to talk yeah. about sexuality because I had the disability that I couldn't hide. I could hide the sexuality, so I didn't want to stack that on top because I was worried what would happen if I was different and different again. But if I could just work with the disability yeah. and be as, I suppose, conventional and conformist in all other respects, that was um, that was an acceptable margin of risk for me. But again, the disability came up over and over and over. And it is tricky, certainly, because people don't necessarily, because of how I present, they don't necessarily mm -hmm. realise that it's there a lot of the time. And I could not be doing this podcast if I was not looking at whenever you speak. I would have to look at those captions. Um, I'm unable yeah. to follow a television programme without captions. Um, a radio is useless to me. Um, I can't use a telephone in the normal way. I can't just casually pick up the phone and do a call if, if I can't see a speaker. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I struggle with. So conference calls with clients and that sort of thing um, were very, very, very challenging. And I think when frustrations bubbled over and when things were not done as quickly as possible and when I was not able to effectively um, do it over email but was trapped onto doing detail-orientated work over calls, the frustrations of sort of more senior lawyers would bubble over where they'd say things like, you just need to listen yeah. harder. And um, when stuff like that happens, you, you're kind of like, um, it, it doesn't matter really sort of like what other achievements you've got to your name or how good you might have been feeling about yourself like a moment like that will just bring all of it tumbling down so there was a lot of that going on in my career sort of you know peaks and troughs so it was um not a linear progression I was doing well yeah. and I was able to sort of you know become a senior associate uh, over time before I left law and went into DEI but again once again the disability was a constant framing of a narrative it's so interesting that you say, and I'm picking up on what you said about disability and sexuality, was that you couldn't hide the disability, so you just stuck with that rather than disclosing your sexuality because actually to stack that on top of your disability, like you said, was was different. And then it's another difference added on top of that. And actually at that point in time in your life, you know, conformity was what you wanted to do. And that is absolutely fine. You know, we all, we all go through moments where we want to do what's best for us. And then particularly when it comes to career, you're right, sometimes it is it's right if you want to progress in your career just to conform, particularly if you're if we're talking about corporate world, right? Because corporate's very, very different to the world of freelance, the world of, you know, talking about DEI, all of these types of things. But it's so interesting, isn't it, what you said that you couldn't hide your disability. So that was like the thing that people knew you for. Whereas, you know, it was easy for you to hide your sexuality so you didn't talk about it. And I think that that's such an interesting conversation to have because and it, and it all goes to that whole idea of passing as normal doesn't it like what and, and what is normal and and if we don't look different or we don't act different then we pass as normal and we can we can progress further and and that's the whole issue with society right that's why we're having these conversations because we can be disabled and proud and who knew but actually there's a lot to be said for it because what would have happened if you know during that time where you weren't talking about your sexuality if someone had said to you something that really you know may have knocked your confidence about your disability but then also then knocked your confidence about your sexuality and, and and where do you go and where do you have these conversations that make you feel empowered enough in who you are did they exist maybe not I don't know but I just think it's such a it's so prevalent to have these conversations because there could be a younger version of you out there who needs to know that they can be who they are even if it feels a bit icky right now yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think it's something actually that it's always present, present actually sort of in, in, in my mind in relation to the fact that um, would I have done things differently? What advice would I give a younger version of me? What advice would I give someone with a disability like mine coming up through the, you know, doing yeah. what I did? Um, and I must admit, actually, is that I, I hesitate to think that I would have done anything different. Because at the time, it always truly felt like it was plotting the safest course of action. Mm-hmm. I was in a genuinely yeah. homophobic environment. I was in a genuinely... Um, you know, every sort of, you know, phobia and ism going, to be honest, because places like, you know, law and banking, they're sort of very, you know, they're sort of casually racist, casually. It's a boys club. It's very much like an undercover boys club. That boys club and all the rest of it like that. So it it certainly, the, the way that I presented outside in relation mm-hmm. to sort of my, my look and how I sounded I was otherwise a prototype of what you know white male Oxbridge and so on assuming heterosexual yeah. and all the rest of it good old boy from the shires I looked and sounded the part of the kind of person who tends to succeed and do well in those um in those settings so yeah. I'm always hesitant in terms of oh you know would I would I sort of find myself an activist or at the barricades if I were to do it again chances are I wouldn't because in all honesty, I was able to leverage certain privileges that I had, chiefly mm-hmm. my whiteness and my maleness, that I talk a lot, actually, about sort of privilege within the margins. And yes, I've yeah. got a marginalised identity and a severe disability in play, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a woman, I'm not black. You know, for, you know, for example, just to take sort of like to f- completely flip it, you know, white man to black woman, how would a black woman navigate my disability in the same environment? Uh, yeah like an intersectional lens the advice that you can give someone who looks like me is that if you can just about conform you'll probably be all right whereas could Mm -hmm. I give the same advice to someone who has the same disability as me but doesn't look anything like me no I couldn't so even advice itself cannot be a one-size-fit-all one thing I would say though as a slight regret is that I do wish I'd been a little bit bolder um, Uh in terms of in, in terms of just owning the disability a little bit sooner because too Mm. often I let other people especially as a very junior lawyer and just qualified too often I let other people um put ideas into my head so for example when partners would put ideas in my head such as you can't tell clients about your disability because if they find out they won't want to pay for your services because they'll think that you've got a substandard associate in there you know uh, that that you know because we charge premium rates that you'll be less capable and I was told that sort of thing to my face and therefore there was a constant knocking of that confidence and almost a a sense of you should be grateful even to be here you should be grateful yeah this job be quiet and you know carry on so I would have liked to have been bolder or feel emboldened a little bit sooner. But again, internalized ableism, it's a powerful thing. It's something that as a society, yeah. in, uh, we and as, as, uh, as parents, as throughout anybody who's mentoring younger people, the sooner you can unpack that internalized ableism, the sooner you can chop that tree down and root, the better it's going to be when they do eventually arise, uh, go to the workplace and they don't have to wait to a certain level of seniority that I effectively became before I started really seizing my own narrative and turning that a little bit. I don't have the words to express how upset I am that someone said to you, don't disclose your disability to a client. I don't I don't have those words because I just think, A, I would never say that to anyone in a million years. I'd be like, no, tell people who you are because that's the kind of person I am. But equally, 
how dare someone make you feel less than for doing the exact same job that they're doing how dare someone do that because actually what a load of rubbish what a load of absolute rubbish and I just think it's it's from that place of almost fear again isn't it that you know oh you're disabled therefore you must be infectious don't pass the disability on don't do this you know and it's very much that narrative of of keep the disability hidden keep it quiet don't let anybody know because if they do all hell will break loose the demons will come up from the underworld and and they'll take over it's very much that narrative and it makes me so mad but also really happy because then I get to talk to you about what was it like transitioning from corporate spaces and then deciding to maybe leave that and go into DEI because I think they're very different but they might not be so please enlighten me. Well, I mean, chiefly amongst them, and in fact, just before I get onto that, actually, sort of, you know, another side of that narrative around disability and how it was spoken to me and how it was talked about was that um, a partner, again, going back many, many years now, actually did take me aside and we were at drinks, it was a social setting, away from sort of these horrors of work. And he disclosed, and again, sort of probably thought it was a sort of bit of a compliment, actually, but he said, you know what, if other people... Uh, if other people were, you know, sorry, how, how to say, it. what did he say? He said, yes, I'm going to try and go with the exact words. He said, if other people were disabled the way you're disabled, we'd hire a lot more of them because you're really high functioning. You're basically normal. That's verbatim. You're basically normal. Mm-hmm. You're, oh you're really high functioning. You're basically normal. And I remember because of sort of, a, you know, when that kind of thing comes from a high ranking equity partner and you're, you know, a couple of years qualifying and you're a social and all the rest of it and you're sort of surrounded by clients and, you know, the, the, the spoils of a job well done. Again, you internalize it differently to how I would internalize something like that now, which would be like, you what? Um, I would I would have sort of bucked against that sort of thing. But again, I just absorbed it into myself and thought, yeah. yes, I'm going to be OK. It's going to be all right. Um, and I must admit, it's the toxicity of that water that people are swimming in, the acidity of that water, and how um, tough it really is for people trying to navigate um, disability and hard-edged corporate environments, especially when you start adding intersections into their identity around race, gender, yeah. um, neurodivergence, and indeed anything else, um, socioeconomic status. Now, moving from corporate, hard-edged corporate and having that fear and a background and having sort of worked for a long time in those satanic mills and survived them um, <laughs> certainly informs, um, informs a lot of the work that I do now. Because one thing that was quite interesting is that um, going into DEI, and I suppose COVID was a little bit of a catalyst, actually, because mm-hmm. uh, you, you'd have to be um, you'd have to be very willfully ignorant to ignore the blatant disparities, whether it's of wealth and opportunity and everything else that exists in our so-called equal and free society. So taking that into account, COVID actually did really um, set aside the haves and the have-nots and all the rest of it like that. And one thing that for me, I was already as a senior associate by that point, 
mentally on the way out. I've been fortunate mm-hmm. enough through corporate finance that I no longer had a mortgage that had been taken care of. So I suppose the sort of uh, the, the chief financial burden that means that people have to get up and perform and, you know, uh, in these horrible money traps was no longer over me. I don't have children, so yeah. I didn't have school fees. I didn't have childcare fees. I didn't have nursery fees. I didn't have all that hanging over me either. So there was a sense of freedom, actually, as lockdown went onwards that I don't have to keep tolerating this industry I don't have to keep tolerating the way this makes me feel and in fact towards the back end of COVID and as 2021 um yeah came in I took my last bonus check and that was it I I left the profession and that was that left it behind took a few months off decided um definitively that I wanted to turn my volunteering in DEI into my full-time job because it was something that I'd always enjoyed and the difference funnily enough is being able to finally harness the power of those differences the very things that Mm. I was constantly having to suppress when it was like you you couldn't talk about your disability and you certainly in my case couldn't talk about one's sexuality ironically those only things that they've actually those flaws um from my old life become my features for my DEI offering and it doesn't mean for example that I understand racism I'm white I don't experience racism Um, I'm a man I don't experience misogyny it's not it's not imbued me with lived experience that I didn't have but it has enabled me to take the lived experience that I do have and experience and and some semblance and some notion of what othering and marginalization feels like Mm -hmm. actually apply it with an intersectional lens to the work that I do right now and walk into the room and say, well, hey, I'm actually, I'm not a non-disabled, neurotypical, you know, cis man and all the rest of it like that. Don't shoot, don't shoot. So being able to actually lead with those attributes as opposed to constantly have to hide them. And that to me is is priceless. It has been priceless for my well-being and, um, and sense of purpose in the world. Sorry, that was quite a speech, wasn't it? So <laughs> no, but it's but these are things that we actually need to like to have these conversations because, as you said, like you, what would have been deemed your weakness in a corporate job actually is completely now your strength mm-hmm. in a DEI sense. And actually, I think we need to kind of take that a bit on board. Is that actually sometimes you do have to be in a place that's uncomfortable because I speak about this a lot, and I say this an awful lot, but uncomfortability leads to growth. Whether that's good growth or bad growth, it does lead to growth. That's just the science of it, right? And actually, you grew so much in your corporate job, it didn't fit you any longer. And you're right about COVID. And there's so much that I could go on to say about COVID and disability because you you can't, you must live under a rock if you don't understand how disproportionately affected disabled people were through COVID than those who were non-disabled. I think it's six out of every 10 deaths were disabled people. If you were learning disabled, you had it and you went into hospital, you got an involuntary DNR on your chart. It was involuntary and that's a legal piece of paper. As you know, you were in law. You can't remove them from your medical file. So there's so many different things that come up through that, right? And actually, now that you work in DEI and and you're able to talk about your differences and and intersectionalities, that word It is a word is amazing because I think everybody should be able to talk about who they are and what they are without fear of repercussion and that's what it all comes down to is being able to talk about who you are and what you do and and what you like and what you don't like and and what you think is right and wrong but actually without fear of being judged and without these big repercussions but the way that you talk about intersectionality I think is so eloquent 
because there's not a lot of people who have the ability to talk about really difficult things like intersectionality in a way that makes it accessible for everyone because I think a lot of people get very very nervous surrounding intersectionality because we don't necessarily know how to have these conversations and the fact that you're able then go into places and, and, and facilitate these conversations that are inherently uncomfortable because as you said you're a white cis male presenting and actually that's not necessarily your reality but being able to facilitate that conversation to make someone feel comfortable even the uncomfortability is amazing I think for me I mean intersectionality is just absorbing that statement really because intersectionality is one of the most um misused and widely abused concepts in all of DEI work mm-hmm. it's often co-opted these days um to effectively just be synonymous with difference yeah which always had to be present regardless you talk about the uh, the oppressions of race and gender and how that actually um affects a person's lived experience how that affects um how they experience our workplaces how they experience society what they might be subject to as i said before a black woman the things that she would be subject to that i would never be subject to mm-hmm. and Therefore, that also, for me, comes across when it comes to disability. I talk a lot about yeah. how I experience my disability, however severe, in a rather privileged way because of my privileged attributes, my whiteness, the certain way yeah. that you're presenting, even the, I'll air quote it, but straight passing, that straight passing privilege that I have, I'm well aware of it. And that is something that I can't really co-opt, you know, sorry, I can't opt out of rather. I have that privilege regardless. It follows me everywhere that I go. I'm even conscious of the way that I look and sound, you know, my physical presentation, the, the, this how I articulate myself. All of these things essentially sort of add up to a very privileged picture so that mm-hmm. disability is not the same impediment that it was to me as you know, when I was a six-year-old and relatively defenseless without all of those power, without all of yeah. those attributes that have made me relatively powerful and safe in society. And it's not being talked about enough how a black person or a member of the global majority, someone who is not white, experiences their neurodivergence and their disability, perhaps in a completely different way, even if we're talking about mm-hmm. exactly the same condition on paper. Yeah. So I like to talk about that a lot. I recognise that anti-racism, combating anti-blackness is, and in fact, decolonization is the underpinning of DEI work. It's the reason DEI exists in the first place and on account, actually, of the civil rights movement. It's not just difference for difference's own sake. There are actually layers to oppression. And yeah. if a person like me is in DEI, especially if I have a leading role in DEI, the first thing that I always want to ask someone who looks and sounds like me is what's your take on anti-racism and what are you doing around that? What do you understand around that? Are you are you deconstructing that, that racism in yourself? Are you really looking critically at yourself and your practice? Or are you simply just saying, well, I've got my you know single issue diversity. Are you simply just getting into the work to, you know, for your own self-serving reasons? So yeah. there's a lot to unpack that. And I sort of have a certain mistrust of, um, uh, I, I will go so far as to say white people in leading roles of DEI, actually, if they're not uh, very openly um, combating that anti-blackness and dealing with anti-racism. Um, I don't like that very much at all, seeing it. Um, when it's just DEI for the sake of 
um, oh, it's just LGBTQ+, or it's just disability, or it's just this, it's just that. It's all of those things, but it is absolutely underpinned by race and gender. Yeah. These conversations are not had enough, particularly surrounding DEI. And I say this as someone who knows an awful lot of people in DEI, and it is incredibly whitewashed. And how how are we meant to have conversations that combat all forms of difference, disability, race, gender, sexuality? You're right, if we're not dismantling, actively dismantling racism. Because actually you're right, at the at the underpin of all of DEI, it's it's all about dismantling the belief systems that we have and, and particularly around decolonization, because I think that's a fascinating topic to talk about, particularly decolonization and disability. Like again, people don't like to have that conversation because it's uncomfortable. You know, we're having this conversation and I'm very aware that I am a cisgender white woman with blonde hair. I'm five foot three. I'm a size eight. In terms of the world, I have an awful lot of privilege. I have a lot of privilege, right? And I'm particularly surrounding my disability. It's very, very obvious. But if I wear a jacket, you probably wouldn't know. So therefore, I go on as passing as someone who is non-disabled until I take my jacket off. But people don't like to admit that because as soon as you admit that you have some form of privilege, you are seen as part of the problem. And if you're not actively trying to deconstruct or or kind of pick apart your own part in the problem, then you're not really doing your job. And a lot of people don't like that conversation around DEI because you're right, a lot of people just like to say, I'm a DEI person because I talk about disability. Well, it's fundamentally unregulated. Anybody, and LinkedIn shows us this, anybody can rock up and self-certify as a DEI advocate or a DEI expert, God forbid. Um, And actually, there's a lot of harm being done by people, especially if they're white women going from HR roles and then simply parachuting into a DEI role. And you have that sort of absurd situation that I often talk about, where if you've got a black woman who's coming to them and saying, I've experienced racism at work, and you've got the two white women from HR sitting there saying, are you sure? No, you haven't. Um, You you get very quickly into a very problematic system where um, that is actually functioning exactly as designed, but it's continually Mm -hmm. producing inequitable outcomes because you've got people adjudicating over these questions who don't have the lived experience and will never have the lived experience because they're white. They don't experience racism. And I will say until my dying day that reverse racism is utter BS. Um, That just is. And so we end up with these... um, We do have a lot of problems in DEI itself. There's a lot of, I mean, (laughs) it's a subject of a whole other podcast, to be honest, but um, I I do believe that white people have the most work to do in relation to that, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to unpacking their own racism, unpacking that anti-blackness, unpacking actually that I, for example, for many years, uh, I've always been disabled, but I've also been able to profit, as it were, at a high level mm-hmm. working corporate finance as often as I did from working um, in an environment that prioritized people who look like me, that always made it um, easy for people like me if mm-hmm. I conformed to succeed and continue to walk through open doors. And the, the further away in terms of identity that you get from that sort of straight presenting um, cis white male, the harder it becomes 
accounts for people as a general rule. And yes, you will find, of course, notable exceptions, but those notable exceptions do not disprove the rule, unfortunately, that that is the experience for many. Yeah, it's it's just so much to unpack. And it's not, I don't say that as being like, it's too much, but it's very, very deep. And it's quite often deconstructing and de- dismantling the way that you view the world is not how it actually is. And for some people, that's like, again, going back to being uncomfortable, it's inherently uncomfortable to be told that you are part of the problem. And sometimes I was having this conversation actually surrounding disability. And I was saying, you know, sometimes you just have to be uncomfortable. There sometimes is no solution to being uncomfortable. You just have to sit through it and understand that actually maybe you are part of the problem. And that being uncomfortable is good because you're realizing that there is a problem and you're part of it and you can learn from that experience but you don't always need to make a comment you just need to know that it's uncomfortable and it's not right and there's a lot to be said in being in in just sitting and listening to other people's experiences and learning and learning from someone else's experiences particularly when it makes you uncomfortable because I'm a big lover of being uncomfortable I think being uncomfortable is where we grow I think it's when we're shown pieces of ourselves that we might not like and therefore we're able to actively work on it, actively change on it. But when we're talking about society, when you realise that you're part of the problem when it comes to society, that's hard. That's hard work, but it shouldn't be shied away from. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely right. We have to be radically honest about our privilege. And you and I, for example, respectively, mm-hmm. will have our um uh, I mean, as much as I hate the phrase, but that pretty privilege, I think, about us in the... I'm good looking. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it, I uh, am joking. That, that, um, that sort of to to look at, I mean, sort of, I mean, you mm. described yourself before, you said, you know, five foot three, you know, blonde hair, white woman, uh, size eight, you know, sort of like all of those conventional trappings of what society yeah. and its billboards would otherwise reward as being conventionally attractive. You know, myself, I'm six feet tall, I'm 15 stone, I'm relatively well built, you know, I look a certain way, I sound a certain way. Again, I mean, in my respective sphere, uh, an element of pretty privilege there, which means, again, that I, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I can't speak for the lived experience of others, but speaking for myself, I am resolutely convinced that even this despite the severity of my disability i do not experience the full force of it certainly not in this day and age as i am right now with the power and the privilege that i have in society i just don't experience it i experience it with the the fullness of its potential oppression that would other apply uh, otherwise apply to people who don't have my privileges and i think actually it's a real um I've noticed actually that sort of that the microaggressions and the sort of outright ableism have sort of trailed off over time. And I've progressively become more powerful, I suppose, within society and retained all those privileges. Um, I used to get some silly things talked about, you know, regarding my disability in terms of people would ask me sort of like, um, can you talk? They'd actually be, you know, in my face and they would say something like, oh, can you talk? Or they would be, I'd be described. I remember being described quite vividly in 2011, um, uh, introduced actually to a group of people. And it was an older man who introduced me from the Law Society. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, this is Warren. Um, he's uh, he's going to become a solicitor. He's deaf and dumb. And um 
absolutely fascinating. It's only ever happened once, the deaf and dumb description. And mm. then, of course, people were quite were just astonished when I started to speak. I held out my hand and sort of, you know, did the usual sort of pleasantries. And I spoke and I had a, you know, normal conversation with these people. And I tried to take being described there in a circle of um, older peers. Um, I tried to take um, being described as deaf and dumb in stride. But it does yeah. stick with us, I think. So we're not, we're never, we're never truly out of the woods. And mm-hmm. you only have to go and put a mask on or COVID or something else like that in my case. So all of a sudden, sort of the the um relative lack of privilege can easily return. But equally, yeah. you know, I retain my institutional privileges in terms of being a man, in terms of being white, in terms of being, you know, relatively, um, you know, financially comfortable and so on. Those institutional privileges are what really make the difference for the bigger picture, as opposed mm-hmm. to situation to situation. And the situational privilege, that relative privilege can certainly get us down. But even that I don't experience uh, to, to the, you know, the same degree and like I used to. Mm. And the more that I'm able to free myself from that and free myself up from my own internalized ableism, the better work I've been able to do actually in DEI in making sure actually that I go back. And I think there's that phrase really about making sure that, you know, you, you, you put down the ladder for people to come up behind you and realize, yeah. that, you know, you've got a responsibility to help others as well as part of this work. And I love that as well, because ultimately, say what you will about DEI, it is ultimately about helping other people, regardless, because actually there are people who are non-disabled who also need DEI. That's that's factual, right? Like, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, it's, it's about making sure the playing field is level for everyone. And I really like what you said about bringing the ladder down for other people behind you, because I always think that we would not be able to have this conversation right now if we didn't stand on the shoulders of giants who came before us, whether that be disability activists, parents, people who spoke out about disability, who who told us that at, at some point a disability is okay. So I have a lot of time for people who who actively help other people and and bring them up and make sure that actually they are being elevated as well regardless of their situation because I think we don't we don't realize that we don't get anywhere without the help of others factually we don't and and also maybe as disabled people we realize that a lot sooner than the non-disabled because actually as soon as we step out into the world that's not our home we rely on other people's helpfulness and kindness whether we want to or not we kind of have to trust that there is going to be someone kind out there who will be kind to us at some point in time because we might need their help whether that's going to the shop to pick up something from a tool shelf or you know someone having a seizure on the bus we have to trust that there are good people out there and and we don't get this far if we don't do that and like i think there's nothing more magical than being able to help someone realize whatever they need to realize but but equally like allowing people to to have the space to become who they need to become I think there's a lot to be said for that and I think the work that you do surrounding DEI is very impactful because you're not shying away from the difficult conversations as we've as we've spoken about you don't shy away from these conversations that that quite often a lot of people don't know how to navigate and and there's a lot to be said in in having awkward conversations but also admitting that you're never necessarily going to have the answer and that maybe you don't have the answer because that takes a lot of bravery to say yes, I'm in a position of power, I will never understand. Equally, I'm not necessarily sure what the answer is, but I'm way more than willing to listen and hear what you have to say so that we can all work together so that we can find a solution somewhere. And that in itself 
is way more powerful than having like a dictatorship. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I must admit, I'm again, I, I'm always sort of in, inherently suspicious of. Um, I mean, I mentioned white people in DER for you know for reasons uh, mm-hmm. into you know being unable to experience racism. But also as well, I'm suspicious of anybody in DEI of any race who appears to use it for ego and clout. Um, the yeah. kind of people who are partaking in the pay to play industry and they're all about the awards and they're all about the accolades. And I'm not entirely sure what work they're doing because everything is just about, you know, chasing post nominals or recognition mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, which, you know, is certainly not the work. Um, and I, I often look at it in terms of what is a person prepared to give up because, in fact, we are all privileged relative to certain situations. In my case, it was quite a clear six-figure pay cut to leave, you know, being a senior associate and going to DEI work. But there's never been a moment of regret there. And admittedly, mm-hmm. yes, that was the financial privilege to be able to absorb that, which factored into the decision. But equally, I could, I'm still a qualified solicitor. I could easily just decide, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I've got the privilege yeah. and the look and the credentials that I could just hop right back into being a lawyer. And, you know, I've lost a couple of years of my career, but I could then, you know, make it back and I could become a partner and gather that wealth and so on, effectively look the other way in relation to all the things that I've mm-hmm. seen things that I know and I don't want to do that I want to remain at the front line of the work that I'm doing because this is real identity-centric purpose work and I do believe it's been my destiny all along you know I'm not sort of a person who's superstitious in any way but the long arc of time actually of being kind of going through that corporate side Mm -hmm. pit stops along the way to now do the purpose work that I do now it's such a blessing and being able to find my people, being able to be more freely and openly myself, being able to hear the stories of others, being able to actually have the time uh, and the headspace to be able to have activities like this, to be having this conversation with you, a a peer and a colleague in this work. Um, All of that is a real honour. All of that is a different type of privilege and one that I'm happy to embrace. And so... I'm proud of that, actually, because, of course, it's not lost on me that this is a disability, a disabled and proud podcast. So yeah. I can't not talk about pride at some point. And it's a different type of pride. We touched on before about how the intersections of identity, how LGBTQ plus and openly so these days, that's a very different sort of open form of pride in a way. Mm-hmm. And disabled pride is, uh, is is much more complex and much more nuanced to me because I was not always proud of the disabled aspect of my identity. Um, I'm still not, if I'm honest, I'm not proud of being disabled. I'm not proud of the fact that my ears don't work as nature intends. I am proud of the person I am as a result of that marginalization. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of what I've gone through, prevailed over, and what I'm here to do now in a better late than never sense. So... Mm -hmm. There's a lot of nuances around those, how those particular prides sort of fit together and how different they are and how I conceive of them completely differently in my mind. And other people might have a, a very different take. After all, if you consider yourself to have a superpower, perhaps that you shout from the rooftops about how proud you are about being disabled. But too often, yeah. for me, when you go down that sort of toxic positivity, you are the kind of person who sits out on the sidelines and expects every person with a limb difference or if they're a little person to become a Paralympian, for example. Or you... This point, exactly. 
Just this point sort of exactly you know you're a superhero you, you should try yeah. the olympics or just i mean i'm being flippant but it's that sort of mindset that sort of nonsense so what we don't necessarily do with disability is celebrate the everyday we don't celebrate yeah. the right to be average the right to be mediocre the right simply to flop down on your bed at the end of the day or sit down and watch netflix or however you spend your time doing we don't necessarily uh -huh. celebrate the ordinary victories and the everyday magic and heroes that comes with disabled identity so this is really it's a really poignant piece so my friends have a t-shirt company and it's called Co, right and it's spelled a-f instead of a-t-h okay mm -hmm. and the idea is that it's all about the everydayers the triers the believers and I think that's what I love about this work the most and what you touched on there is so perfect you we never celebrate just being average and disabled because we have this, I wouldn't say that, I mean, we as in like society, not as in we as in me and you having this conversation, but we have this idea that to be a good, quote unquote, good disabled person means that you are a Paralympian or you're some, you, you've climbed Mount Everest and you have no hands and no feet or, or you've done something that it's, it's extraordinary, right? But what about all the people, yeah, heavy on the inspiration porn, but what about all of the people who are just living their lives? And and the reason I brought up the T-shirt companies, because that's exactly what they stand for, right? They stand for like the everydayers. And that's exactly also equally, I think, what I quite stand for as well is that you can be box standard and disabled and you can still celebrate that you do not have to be a paralympian to be a good disabled person you don't even have to be a good disabled person you can have pride in your disability and still be a dick you, you can be like but a society <laughs> we don't like to say that because at some point you know you've got to almost prove that you should be here if you're disabled or you need to bring extra value there should be something extra and added to you as a person like for you for example you know saying that hearing is your superpower I wouldn't be surprised if someone in your life had said to you oh I bet that you can feel the music through the floor you know that's your superpower like you can feel the beat or, or something along those lines because we never have it where it's actually yeah but I don't like music <laughs> you know we don't celebrate that actually like I'm a very very bog standard normal person I just also happen to be disabled and and I, I love I love that so much but then touching on what you said about pride because I think pride is a very very strong word and obviously like I'm full of pride to be disabled I wouldn't have created a podcast if I wasn't and I wouldn't be having these conversations surrounding this topic but pride in the sense of disability pride and pride in the sense of LGBTQ plus pride. They're two very different things that they quite often get. I want to say conflated, and I'm not necessarily sure that's the right word, but I feel like it fits this purpose right now. And how how do we have this conversation where actually disability pride and sexual pride, LGBTQ plus pride, how, how do we have this conversation where we say actually they're two, they're very they're both equally very important, but they're actually very different. Well, I think as with so oft, as with so many societal issues, um, awareness and understanding is key. So mm -hmm. we have the disability pride flag. We have the main pride flag, which of course has changed now to include intersex people, and of course, you know, the progress flag is its name. So you have Pride Month in June, immediately followed, although lots of people still don't know this, in July by Disability Pride Month. 
And all too often, where you have the Pride seasons and you'll have UK Black Pride and you'll have Trans Pride and you'll have Bi Pride, and I attended all of them and I enjoyed them very much and so on. It's part of <laughs> um, but what's fascinating is that when you have, we talked about conflating, um, and when you have Disability Pride Month appearing in July, it appears to be one of the prides. And to the untrained eye, because it's even got its own rainbow flag, if you will, you know, obviously got sort of, you know, the dark grey background and sort of like, you know, those muted colours and so on, sort of like several colours for signifying different types of disability. It's a type of rainbow flag, albeit much less colourful and much less eye-catching, but it's a type of rainbow flag. And therefore, as a result, lots of people in their minds still think of disability pride as being related to that mainstream pride. Now, the mainstream pride, of course, belongs to LGBTQ plus and that community. But the beauty of it, of course, going back to intersectional perspectives, is the LGBTQ plus community already contains disabled people. We've got one. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> anybody, <laughs> I exist. Let's say, yeah. um, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise anybody to know that that the LGBTQ plus community itself, the rainbow community, is no monolith, that you will have yeah. black people in there, brown people in there, white people in there, neurodivergent people, you know, tall people, short people, disabled people, and so on and so on. You know, the beauty of human diversity exists within that community, just like any other. So mm -hmm. therefore... I would very much like us as a society and in our workplaces to truly carve out Disability Pride Month and recognise it and celebrate it for what it is, which is it's actually about disabled identity. It has yeah. nothing to do inherently with LGBTQ+. It's about disabled identity. And however you identify, going right back to the start in terms of about labels and in terms of how we refer to ourselves, how we identify... If you're part of that community, how you identify and how you handle and relate to your disability and interface with the world is inherently valid. But equally, there's still not enough support and not enough equity out there mm -hmm. in workplaces and societies and schools and all of these different places where you have to, you know, grow up and you know, run those gauntlets. You know, there's not enough opportunities yet to be proud and disabled yeah it's not the same opportunity to be out and proud that we have with mainstream pride it's still a more muted celebration and i'm not even sure it is necessarily a celebration and there's a real counter narrative about the fact that i don't want to celebrate my disability i don't i don't feel proud about my disability and those views are valid as well but awareness and understanding about the fact that we are here the disabled community has rights and we have the rights not to just be superheroes or to be referred as such, but to just go about live our lives in peace and for people to yeah. have more empathy and understanding for us. I would love to see that. And I would love to see uh, corporations actually um, changing their logos to the disability pride flag, for example. And that, to me, will start to feel a little bit like progress, but equally that can't just be performative in nature it has yeah. to really go to the substance of how you're treating how you're hiring and retaining and promoting your disabled staff again another conversation for another day yeah. um that the pride um dynamic between the two and especially because they're back to back in the calendar it does it, it, it causes a bit of head scratching i honestly think we might have to do a part two because there's so much to dive into and you're not like as i said at the beginning your knowledge is so depth it's got so much depth to it and and actually these are the type of conversations that we need to be having but I'm gonna end with my traditional question which you kind of answered but I kind of want you to answer it again just because I think 
it needs to be said and that is Warren are you disabled and proud today yes it wasn't always the way but today yes for reasons that I hope have become clear through talking about my journey my career childhood life all of these different influences and the person that I am now and being able to leave behind those privileges and be able to learn more about myself um and indeed about others as well and I would say yes I am thank you so so much for being on the podcast today I have loved this conversation I think there's been so much covered and actually do you know what it might be a really uncomfortable listen for people but actually as we've as we've said many times throughout this conversation sometimes you just have to be uncomfortable so firstly thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and thank you so much for giving up a time of your day to come and speak to me because I've loved it likewise that feeling is certainly mutual Brooke so if we ever need to do it again absolutely yes part two (laughs) coming again love it oh Warren you have the best rest of your day because I will be thinking about this for the, at least for the next 24 72 hours <laughs> no, no issues <laughs> an absolute pleasure thank you thanks for listening to this episode of disabled and proud if you've enjoyed the show then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts it really helps us to reach more and more people each week plus if you've got a particular highlight then i'd absolutely love to hear it tag me on your insta stories at disabled and proud podcast oh, no.